on front page with me from Malaysia Kini, Martin Vingadesen, and from Malay Mail, Ida Nadira Ibrahim. Good morning, folks. Good morning. morning. Now, a bright future lies ahead for technical and vocational education and training in Malaysia, says our education minister, Dr. Mazli Malik. Uh, However, English proficiency is one of the sore spots with regards to this. And it said that, um, you know, the proficiency of the English in the learning of technical subjects is much to be desired. I guess in this day and age, I, I don't understand why the importance of English, as it is recognized worldwide, why are we not making it as important as Bahasa Malaysia? I think we've allowed our communities to be a bit di- divided in terms of educational systems, uh, primarily with the language schools, which are, you know, in Malay, English and Tamil. And the truth is, in a knowledge-based economy, if you want to compete globally, English is still the language. It's the language of the internet. It's the language of technology. And so our workers should really rise to that challenge. We shouldn't try to hide behind our respective communities. I also feel English education is actually uh, it's a unifying force because in a way everybody moves to it. It's a bit neutral. It doesn't depend so much on your on your racial and cultural identity. All of us can move towards that language and it will help us as individuals and the nation collectively to compete. Yeah. Your thoughts, Ida? No doubt that English is important in terms of our education and in the workforce and everything. But then at the same time, to me, it's still our national language and we still need to have some pride in it. Like recently, if you see online, there's this thing going on called the Basel Malaysia Challenge. And you see that Malaysians are challenging themselves to speak Malay, mm-hmm. you know, and it's our own language. And the, the issue is not about whether you're proud that you cannot speak Malay properly or not. But the fact that a lot of us cannot speak our own national language smoothly without mixing other languages into it. A lot of Malaysians speak Malay with a lot of English Roja, words yeah. added into it. So you it's know? kind of, yeah. you know, Roja. Yes, very Roja. So. Okay. Now, I guess with um, the perception is that TVET is for those who couldn't go on to like, you know, professional degrees. So hence, it's kind of looked down upon. And for the most part, I guess the perception is that those who want to uh, take up TVET, their, their Bahasa Malaysia is stronger than their English. Where can we start? Yeah, first of all, if we uh, if we want to be a developed nation, we have we shouldn't be looking down on workers who need who need that sort of training. And secondly, uh, English is again the language of technology. You will find that uh, languages evolve organically. So in classical Malay, there may not be a lot of words to for the kind of terminology you find in in the technological fields. So I, I really feel it doesn't hurt for our workers who are undergoing training. Mm-hmm to brush up on their English. All right. Well, next, Putrajaya is one of five places in the country where the air quality is registered very unhealthy. In fact, uh, over 100 schools have been closed. We're going to take a look at that next. After Westlife, my love here on Light. On front page with me this morning from Malay Mail, Ida Nadira Ibrahim and Malaysia Kini. We have Martin Vengadesen. And Putrajaya is one of five places in the country where the air quality has been registered as very unhealthy. This was uh, at 9 a.m. on Monday. In fact, uh, so many schools, over 100 schools, have been closed today. And year on year, we know the haze is going to affect us. And um, why does it take so long for the government to react with actions like cloud seeding and such? Sometimes I I think they're they're literally waiting for the situation to blow over. We actually got the first warnings on August 12th, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when uh, parts of Sarawak had very high readings. And the the fact that there are going to be forest fires from Indonesia blowing over and and, and causing this 
is very unhealthy and hazardous readings is nothing new. It's actually almost a, a seasonal thing. It's been going on since the at least the mid-90s. So I, I can't say why our government is slow to react, but it certainly has been a pattern, whether it's the current government or the previous regime. Right. Is it because we have various business interests in that part of the world? That's certainly one thing that compromises uh, Malaysia's actions. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know if, if the two are linked as in terms of like, why we are slow to implement cloud seeding as opposed to our, our business interests. Mm-hmm. What can be determined is that we seem to lack some sort of coherent political strategy to deal with the situation, to actually go after those companies in Indonesia that are Malaysia-owned. Mm. Your thoughts, Ida? Well, yeah, like Martin said, we, we don't have an answer of why they are taking so long to act on this. But this is something that we see happening almost every year. So why is it that you have to wait for something to happen to react? Like recently, the government is going to write a letter to the ASEAN Secretariat. Why mm. do you have to wait now? Why don't you do it before this? Because you know it's going to happen anyways. And what is Indonesia doing well, to prevent this? What will a letter do? To yeah. <laughs> for I think if you see three or four CEOs in jail because of this, prominently arrested because your mm-hmm. your company has not done anything to, to act against open burning and that's why there's such high levels of mm-hmm. pollution. And if you see the leaders, the corporate leaders, really, uh, I think a small fine won't cover it. No. I think if you see them actually uh, mm-hmm. arrested and jailed because of this pollution, then people will take it seriously. Now, uh, the ASEAN Agreement on Transboundary Haze Pollution is a legally binding environmental agreement signed in 2002 by the member states of the Association of Southeast Asian nations to reduce haze pollution in Southeast Asia. As of September 2014, all 10 ASEAN countries have ratified the haze agreement. Is this transboundary haze agreement just a document with very little action? Yeah. I mean, ASEAN has been known to be a toothless tiger. Like, there's a lot of issues mm. that it's just talk, but not much action going on. So this is one of the examples. And uh, now that things are getting worse, you're talking about having an act like the question again, like why do you have to wait until things get worse for you to take action? Why can't you just work on it now slowly and see where things are, how, yeah. and you know, to address the issue at hand with we prevention, even, you know? Like, sorry, we even saw a blame game from the part of Indonesia mm, yes. trying to, whereas it was very clear scientifically that uh, there were over 800 hotspots in Kalimantan and Sumatra and just a handful in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So clearly the source of this, this haze, this time around for sure, it's Indonesia. Yeah, I, I feel that we're just going to be having this conversation <laughs> week yes. in and week out until uh, it blows over, as you said sure. earlier. Well, coming up to Dr. Mother Muhammad, chairman of PPBM, says his party will consider any application for whoever wants to join. That's up next after the traffic update and the BGs on light. And on front page this morning from Malaysia Kini, Martin Vengadesen, and from Malay Mail, Ida Nadira Ibrahim. Now, Tun Dr. Mahathir Muhammad, who's the chairman of PPBM, said his party will consider any application by PKR Deputy President Muhammad Azmin Ali if he feels he wants to join the party. In fact, he was downplaying the presence of the PKR Deputy President at Parti Pribumi Bersatu Malaysia's third anniversary event recently. He says that there were many invitations 
invitation sent out and yeah anyone who's able to attend attended and it was nothing special so I guess the question is I mean optics wise you know it raised eyebrows a bit and had tongues wagging Azmin has been successful in PKR for the past decade why would he even wish to move to PPBM your thoughts Ida like you said you know he has a very strong support from the grassroots in PKR so if he wants to move to PBBM you have to ask like what is the reason if it's the reason is behind his relationship with the president Dato Sri Anwar then you got to remember like is this parties about the two individuals or is it about the people you know you have to remember back like what is it the party is championing for yeah i think we we have to acknowledge that every party has factions you know dap has pro kids young and and some that are a bit more independent and we've certainly seen in amno recently uh, the return of zahir hamidi and also while mat hasan was developing the party so there are different groups and different factions unfortunately in pkr things have been so open that camps that are that spend more time working against each other than against other parties mm-hmm. so if you look at the natural order of things the, the pakatan harpan won the election on the premise that mahathir would 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 be would serve as prime minister and then anwar would be his successor in that dynamic the next the strongest candidate was azmin in the long term so i actually believe pkr should get its act together it's the largest party in parliament it's the it's a multiracial party with mps from you know who are indian chinese sarawak sabah as well as malay mm-hmm. they're actually in the best position so they should actually resolve their differences right. rather than than resort to moving out. Okay, if he should decide to join PPBM, how would this affect dynamics within Pakatan Harapan? Well, he's a major player, you can't deny that. Mm. But uh, you know there's been a lot of speculation just last month the people were saying Azmin might move to Gerakan. So <laughs> Really? Yes, yeah. I uh, didn't Utusan, hear that. Yeah, Utusan Rayana. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so I missed it that day. I if I were him, I would stay put. I would reconcile with the PKR president. That's mm-hmm. where you built your base. That's the, that's where the people elected you. That's where you're strongest. Okay, interesting. Something we're definitely watching closely. Now, uh, coming up, over 70% of uh, local entrepreneurs will be affected if the government decides to ban e-cigarettes and vaping products. That's next. After Ed Sheeran, here's Perfect on Light. <laughs> on front page with me this morning, we've got from uh, Malay Mail, Ida Nadira Ibrahim, and from Malaysia Kini, Martin Vingadesen and it looks like over 70% of local entrepreneurs uh, will be affected if the government decides to ban e-cigarette and vaping products. In fact, Malaysian Vape Chamber of Commerce President Said Azaudin said that such a harsh move will severely dent retailers and create an illegal market with unregulated vape products which is far more dangerous. Um, so the question is do we need a ban or do we need regulations which include heftier taxes? on the e-cigarette market. First of all, if you want to ban it, just ban it. You know, people are actually tired about the rhetorics, but if you want to regulate it, you have to think about uh, how cigarettes started off again. Like back then, tobacco, even doctors used to promote tobacco use until they realized after several years of study, they realized the health impact of smoking. So now there's more studies coming out that reveals the health risk of e-cigarette. Yeah. So you have to think whether you want to, you know, you want to go back there because like for cigarettes, you cannot really ban it because if you ban it, then you have to ask whether you are willing to let go the high tax that we get from tobacco. 
Yeah, I think banning won't necessarily be successful. We certainly have every uh, every year we see large amounts of smuggled critic uh, cigarettes and all kinds of contraband. So if you if you ban it, it will just drive it underground. Mm-hmm. I think it's like the the US saw when it uh, in the prohibition era when it tried to ban alcohol. When, when something is so ingrained in the community across uh, across all uh, races and genders, it's very hard to break. At the same time, maybe you need to hit people where it hurts in the pocket. Maybe I would say health insurance is one of the best ways in which to go uh, if you want to cut down the cost of smoking both in terms of financially and in terms of the, the the burden on the health system. Yes. I think if you can penalize smokers by doubling their health insurance coverage, something mm. like that. Does it being a billion dollar industry actually justify the potential hazard to health of so many Malaysians? Well, obviously if you're looking at the health perspective, it doesn't, but at the same time our government is quite dependent again on the tax so that's the sad part like we we can look at other countries we can look at how Brunei is doing it but they can do it because they did not depend on they are not depending on it but we are so that's a different issue so you have to look whether you're willing to let that go or not all right coming up we'll take a look at the glut of high-end units uh, in Malaysia and how we're trying to promote these units in China and Hong Kong let's next after the traffic update and the Eurythmics sweet dreams on light on front page with me this morning from Malaysia Kini, Martin Vengadesen, and from Malay Mail, Ida Nadira Ibrahim. Now, Housing and Local Government Minister Zuraida Kamarudin has described those who criticized her proposal on promoting 100 billion ringgit worth of unsold high end houses to buyers in China and Hong Kong as lacking in national economic concepts. She said that in the current economic situation, the government must look into ways to solve the country's economic woes as well as those in the housing industry. I guess with more and more high-end homes being built, what should be the right action to ensure a drop in the high-end unit glut in Malaysia? Zuraida's proposal is actually just a, a short-term solution to this issue. So it doesn't address the deeper cost of this excess of luxury properties in Malaysia. So they have to look into it like because we have a lot of these high-end units, but at the same time, there's a mismatch supply and demand because a lot of people cannot afford it, especially the younger generation. Mm-hmm. Maybe the solution is to build more affordable housing to address the demand. Yes, that's definitely a there's definitely a discrepancy in terms of supply and demand. Basically, developers it's more lucrative for them to build high-end properties. And at the same time, the B40, the the low-cost homes, those which cost uh, 100,000 to 300,000, there's basically a shortage. Yeah. So for the long term, uh, the government has to address this directly with the developers. There needs to be some sort of uh, legislative policy ensuring that you cannot create more yeah, yeah more, more and more high end, high end which is which doesn't meet the demand basically they're unsold right and at the same time there, there are many people at the low end uh, uh, looking for property right i guess the ones uh, you know the the glut in high luxury apartments and condos and houses i mean like you said earlier ida i mean at this point if we can sell those off wonderful but yeah. don't build more i guess mm. that's the the message here how does having more chinese in hong kong property investors affect Malaysia and I guess the economy it's, it's actually you have to let it go to market forces certainly uh, China's uh, economy with uh, which is growing fast yeah expanding 
And those are the kind of people who will have money to spend in Malaysia. And if their demand meets the supply, I think that's great. But at the same time, the government, the government has to look at how it impacts because they, are, they will not have roots in Malaysia. They could be just playing the property market, driving prices up, mm-hmm. high rentals, high sales, later on, high sale prices later on. So there has to be some sort of body taking a look at how many people we are allowing to, yeah, to do Yeah, and this. the impact of that yes. on the market itself. Malaysia has been opening up uh, its property market to China for a while, but now we're looking at it, uh, proposing to open it to Hong Kong. So one of the things, like the experts have been saying that one of the things that they have to look into is the impact of the ties between Malaysia and China because of what's happening between China and Hong Kong. Because China might not be happy with Hong Kong looking elsewhere, like in Malaysia, so... That's one of the things they have to look into. Well, it's definitely something we are watching. Well, thank you folks so much for joining us this morning. Thank Welcome. you. That was Martin Vingadesen from Malaysia Kini and Ida Nadira Ibrahim from Malay Mail.